wondered what it's like to face the complex world of disability insurance claims as a physician? Meet Edward Dabdaub, the founding attorney at Dabdaub Law Firm. Eddie began his legal career working as a law clerk during law school at a disability insurance firm, and he would go on to build his own law firm for the sole purpose of handling disability insurance claims. He spent his entire legal career helping people get paid disability insurance benefits. Today, his firm represents all types of physicians across the country. Eddie specializes in physician disability insurance claims, appeals, and litigation. Eddie has represented many physicians and gained a deep understanding of the occupational duties of various medical specialties, and he's applied that knowledge to successfully obtain disability insurance benefits on behalf of physicians. He recently won a case on behalf of a liver transplant surgeon who had own occupation disability insurance. After suffering a fall, the doctor could no longer perform liver transplant, but continued to perform other types of surgeries. His insurance company denied his total disability claim on the grounds that he had more than one occupation, because prior to his disability, he performed other types of surgeries when not doing liver transplants. Eddie successfully argued before the federal court that his occupation was that of a liver transplant surgeon. Once he became unable to perform liver transplant, he was totally disabled from his own occupation despite continuing to do other surgeries. With experience litigating in both federal and state courts, Edward Dabdaub is a true hero for those seeking the disability insurance benefits they deserve. So if you or someone you know is navigating the challenging world of disability insurance, don't miss the opportunity to connect with Edward Dabdaub and his dedicated team at Dabdaub Law Firm. They've got your back. Stay tuned for another fascinating episode of the Physician's Guide to Doctoring. And remember, when life throws its toughest challenges your way, Edward Dabdaub and his firm are here to fight for your rights. Visit longtermdisability.net to learn more. On the podcast, we've talked about emotional exhaustion that comes with being a physician and how boundaries can help. Well, this intensivist argues that more compassion is the way to go and makes a compelling and evidence-based argument on how. Hey, this is Brad Block, host of The Physician's Guide to Doctoring. This is a personal and professional development podcast for physicians where we have experts on the show that try to teach us everything we should have been learning while we were memorizing Krebs cycle. Dr. Stephen Treziak, thanks so much for being on the podcast. Brad, thanks so much for having me. So for the audience, Dr. Treziak is a physician scientist, chief of medicine at Cooper University Healthcare, and professor and chair of medicine at their medical school. Of uh, Cooper Medical School of Rowan University in Camden, New Jersey, not too far from me. He's an intensivist and a clinical researcher with more than 120 publications in the scientific literature. It's a few more than my five. His scientific program has been supported by research grants from the NIH, and he serves as principal investigator. He is the co-author of two books, and that's going to be the main topic of discussion today, Compassionomics, the Revolutionary Scientific Evidence That Caring Makes a Difference. And this book was more directed towards healthcare providers, that actually one of the solutions for um, compassion fatigue is actually being more compassionate. And then the follow-up to that is how it can help the wider population who don't professionally care for people, which is Wonder Drug, Seven Scientifically Proven Ways That Serving Others Is the Best Medicine for Yourself. He is, his mission is to raise compassion and kindness globally through science. So again, Dr. Treziak, thanks so much for being here. 
Pleasure's all mine. So let's just start with where this all came from. What is the origin of Compassionomics? So by background, I'm an intensivist, but I'm also a physician scientist, meaning researcher. So I studied resuscitation science in the ICU for 15 years, and I was studying specifically, I was studying brain injury after cardiac arrest. And my colleagues and I were trying to identify the optimal level of oxygen in the blood following resuscitation from cardiac arrest to reduce the risk of permanent neurological disability. And now I study compassion. Of course, it's a pivot, a change in trajectory, no doubt. And it started with a question from a 12-year-old, literally. The 12-year-old was my son. And one evening we were at home and he asked me for help. And he said, Dad, I know you give a lot of talks in your research, but can you help me with my talk? I have to give a talk for my class at school. Can you help me prepare mine? And I thought this was going to be, this is awesome. How, you know, this this will be the ultimate father-son bonding opportunity. Little did I know what was in store for me. He reached into his backpack and pulled out a sheet of paper and put it down on my desk. And on that sheet of paper was the topic for his talk at school. And it was this, what is the most pressing problem of our time? Seventh grade. So Brad, I don't know what you were doing in seventh grade. I was not doing what is the most pressing problem of our time. But what we came to over the next few evenings of, of dialogue, right? There's no single one thing, the most, the single one most pressing problem of our time. The question is, what is the most pressing problem of our time for you? Through your lens of experience, in your little corner of the world, in whatever scope of influence you may have. And so what he picked isn't what's important. What's important is he actually believed it. And this set off a, a period of great introspection for me because... While the work that we were doing in resuscitation was very important, if you happen to have that condition, it wasn't, for me at least, the most pressing problem of our time. You were trying to optimize outcomes for people following a cardiac arrest, right? Which is not a small problem. This is not like a small sliver of the population. And yet for you, it wasn't enough. But you had to figure out what was the most pressing problem of our time. Not that it wasn't enough. It wasn't the right thing. Like, for example, what is going to get you out of bed in the morning when you put your feet on the floor? I have the most pressing problem of our time waiting for me. And what became clear to me is that there is abundant research that we have a compassion crisis in healthcare. Now, there's also abundant data that we have a compassion crisis in society broadly. That's a totally different talk for a different day, right? But there is extensive evidence that it is spilling over into healthcare. And we could go through all of the data, for example, a health affairs study from researchers at Harvard Medical School found that 46% of the population believe not only that our healthcare system is not compassionate, but that our healthcare providers are not compassionate either. That, for me, became the most pressing problem of our time, and that's why I decided to pivot our entire research program to focus on it. That's how we got here today. Well, you work with healthcare providers all the time. You train healthcare providers. So do you think that's a misperception, or do you think—and also, sorry, I shouldn't be asking two questions at a time. 
But it seems to me that it's not binary. You're either compassionate or you're not. You're somewhere on the, everyone's somewhere on the spectrum from zero to 100. But do you really believe that the public's perception of us, let's say, not having enough compassion is really true? Yes, but I want to explain why. I believe that 99% of people who go into medicine have their heart in the right place. I, I really believe that. The challenge is that we're not always consistent about it. And it is research supports is that healthcare experiences stay with people. At our worst, that is something that becomes ingrained in their memory, never to be forgotten. And it goes on and on and it reverberates in like an echo chamber. And I'm very concerned about what do patients and their families remember one year later, five years later. But the research supports that. So for example, a University of Michigan meta-analysis found that among college students, empathy has been declining over the past two decades, and the speed of that decline has been accelerating over time. A Harvard Graduate School of Education study found that it, among 10,000 youth, so these were middle school or high school students, they found that 80% of our youth believe that their parents, their parents believe that, that the parents value their achievements and accolades more than they value the kid's kindness for others. And in a striking Pew Research study from just a few years ago, fully one-third of Americans endorsed that they don't consider compassion for others to be among their core values that describes them well. Now, that's societal. But in healthcare, I shared with you the health affairs study, but what research supports, and this is fairly consistent, is when I say research says or science says, there's no monolithic research or science, right? So like if there are 20 studies on something, there's no such thing as 20 studies saying the exact same thing. So when I say that, what I mean is that I have personally and painstakingly gone through all of the evidence and the preponderance of evidence says this or that. And so research supports that physicians specifically miss 60 to 90% of opportunities to respond to patients with a compassion. And, and, and in the context of an office visit, that um, compassion comprises less than 1% of all physician statements to patients. The, the most striking was a University of Washington study funded by the NIH that found that among end-of-life conversations in the ICU, fully one-third of those had zero, zero statements of compassion from the ICU care team to patients or families. And that was at the end of life. I'm an outpatient doctor. I'm seeing like 30 patients a day. I'm trying to and if I see fewer than that, then that means there are more people that have to wait, more people that are trying to get in urgently, more people. And if I take long time to see them, then I'm spending, you know, then I have a ton of people waiting in the waiting room. So the efficiency is as much as it's perceived by the public to be to line my pockets with lots of co-pays or whatever. It's because people are demanding to get in sooner and I'm trying to accommodate that, right? So I've got finite time. I can't really be spending the entire... A, a significant chunk of that, expending compassion when I need to figure out what's wrong with them, right? Examine them, 
listen to their story and come up with a treatment plan for all at the same time, all while thinking about all of that stuff. And I'm supposed to do that a very short period of time. There's only so much time I have for compassion. So I would argue 1% might not be an unreasonable event. You think compassion takes a lot of time? Well, no, but what you're saying is that only 1% is spent expressing compassion. So it might be that that's enough time. It might be that that's adequate. Brad, how much time does compassion actually take? That's my question to you. It's been studied. So what's the minimum effective dose of compassion? In an experimentally, in experimental trial from researchers at Johns Hopkins University. So they took 210 subjects, the vast majority of whom were survivors of breast cancer. And they randomized them to a conventional information-only consultation with an oncologist versus what they called an enhanced compassion intervention. And the primary outcome measure for this study was a very well-validated scale of anxiety. And so if you've ever had cancer, if anybody close to you has had cancer, you know anxiety is a pretty important outcome measure. You know, I think that's well accepted. What they found is that the compassion enhancement in a randomized trial was superior to an information-only consult with an oncologist for the outcome measure of reducing patient anxiety. And so the question is, well, then what's, what's the intervention? While I don't have the text right in front of me, it was things like, I know this is a difficult time for you, and I want you to know that I'm here with you. And the things that I may say to you today may be difficult to understand, but I want you to stop me if uh, something doesn't make sense. And then at the end of the consultation, again, I want you to know that we are here together. We are in this together, and we will go through it together. And that intervention had a statistically significant measurable reduction in anxiety levels for the patient. So they measured it. It was 40 seconds. It was 40 seconds. Now, some of my colleagues, some of my colleagues bristle at that. And I'll tell you why. Because they tell me this, because they hate it when I talk about 40 seconds. They say there should be no time dimension at all. Because you can go through your day with brusque efficiency, letting everybody or anybody know exactly how busy you are or, or how busy you think you are. But if we were to hold a stopwatch to you, it actually wouldn't be any different. It is at most, you know, some series of 40 second intervals. Perhaps there should be no time dimension at all. What do you think about that? Well, let's say I could do this math in my head. So 30 seconds of a 10-minute visit is 1 20th of the visit. So that's 5%. five So if it's tw 20-minute visit, that's 2.5%. I think I did that math correctly. So just rounding error there. So like 2.5% of the visit seems to be enough, which is, you know, when you think of it like that, it's only 2.5% of the whole visit. No problem. I can accommodate that in my day. And I would argue that saying those things would actually increase the efficiency. Not only increase the efficiency, but it'll also enhance your own experience. Yes. It'll fill your cup. It will fill your cup. I love how you said that. I use that often myself because, as you know, we there is an epidemic of burnout in 
U.S. healthcare, perhaps worldwide. What the research supports is that more compassion, not less, actually can build resistance to burnout and build resilience. And the rationale, and I suspect you probably want to talk about this, is that it enhances relationships. So if there's one thing that in our work, that's Dr. Anthony Mazzarelli, my colleague, co-author, that one thing that we have found is that the key to resilience is relationships. So if your patients know that you care deeply about you, about them, that is, and they feel it, and you get the relationship that flows from that, then you get everything that's awesome about being a doctor or a nurse or anybody else in healthcare for that matter. And if you don't have that relationship, all you're left with is a incredibly stressful job. The research supports. And again, when I say the research, I mean the preponderance. So specifically as it relates to compassion and an inverse relationship with burnout, it's 80% of the published literature supports that there is an association, but it's inverse which is very different from when I went to medical school. So I went to medical school in the 90s, and I won't tell you where I went. I remember very distinctly being taught. I was taught this. This was you know, early in my third year, probably a couple of weeks into my third year of medical school. I was taught this. Don't care too much because too much caring, too much compassion burns you out. And I believe that dogma for 25 years until I was in the throes of burnout myself. And this was, you know, after 20 years of working in the ICU, I believe that. And imagine my surprise when I went, when, when I found myself in the throes of burnout and, and the conventional thinking was, if you're burned out, you ought to uh, put on your headphones and block out the world you know, put on your Headspace app or, and take nature walks by yourself and take more vacations and get away more. Escapism is what I call that. And to me, that just didn't compute. I mean, I thought that there had to be a solution at the point of care, not an escape. I didn't think escape was the solution. And so imagine my surprise when I went through the scientific literature. And in going to the literature where anecdote and opinion once reigned, like back when I was in medical school, now there was bona fide research. And what the research showed is an inverse association. So if what I was taught in medical school is true, too much caring, too much compassion burns you out, then it would be high compassion, high burnout low compassion, low burnout, but what the research supports is inverse, high compassion, low burnout, low compassion, high burnout. And why? I think it's all about relationships. Appreciate it. And I don't disagree. I mean, I had an episode a, a few months ago with Jordan Grummet, who's a hospice doctor who wrote a book about his, his experiences. And he said, you know, the dying, the, the most important things to them were their experiences, their relationships, and their passions, right? And so relationships are you know, hugely important. And then, you know, there's this longitudinal Harvard study that shows the strengths of your relationships are the most important predictor of longevity and health outcomes, right? So I don't disagree. However, what about 
those that are experiencing compassion fatigue, right? They leave an office visit and they're just drained. They feel like they're giving everything to their patients and leaving nothing for themselves. So what about there's creating boundaries in order to preserve yourself? So is that just incorrect? Should we just be breaking down these boundaries and giving everything? Like, what? where's the balance here? It's a great question, and it's not incorrect. What I want to share with you is, first of all, some definitions. And so I want to talk about empathy and compassion. And sometimes those words are, or those terms are used interchangeably. So compassion is typically defined as an emotional response to another person's pain or suffering involving an authentic desire to help. So it's different from a closely related word, empathy. So empathy is the sensing, detecting, feeling, and understanding component. But compassion goes beyond empathy in that it involves taking action to alleviate another person's pain, suffering, or struggle to whatever extent is possible. Now, studies using functional MRI have shown that when you have empathy, you bear witness to someone's pain or suffering. It actually activates the pain center of your brain. And we all know this experientially because it's very difficult to watch someone who is struggling. It's very uncomfortable. But what the same lines of research, again, using functional MRI brain scans, so indicating to us what parts of the brain are being activated at any given moment, when, we, when our mind is focused on taking action to alleviate another person's pain or suffering to whatever extent is possible, it's not the pain center of the brain is, that's activated. It's a distinctly different neural structure. It's actually what neuroscience researchers would call a reward center, reward. So positive affect, positive emotion, feelings of affiliation. But you know that experientially because that's why it feels good to help people. That's part of the reason why it feels good to help people. So if I'm in an office visit with a patient and they say, they, I'm an otolaryngologist, I don't, deal, you know, I don't see head and neck cancer, so I'm not seeing a lot of the, you know, the heavier stuff. But if I have a patient that says, that they just lost a child, right? During the visit. If I think to myself, oh man, and then I think of what it would be like to lose one of my children, that's empathy, right? I'm sharing that experience. But if I, so compassion would be more, clearly this person is having a challenging time. What, instead of putting myself in their shoes, think what would be a way that I can show this person that I care about them and I want to help them how how I can. Just listen to their story and sit with them, but not try to put ourselves in their shoes. I'll say two things to that. First of all, I agree. Second of all, anytime you can find ways to alleviate another person's pain or suffering, it will likely be a positive experience for you. So I'll just give you a very brief example. So not too long ago, I was, ta I was rounding in the ICU and I had an especially rough ICU service of my 15 patients, a super high proportion of them had a condition that ultimately I was not going to be able to fix, or no, I should say no one was going to be able to fix. And yes, of course, that's depressing, dejecting, whatever you want to call it. But 
there was a gentleman that we had extubated who had a terminal diagnosis. And I noticed that he was having, and I'm, by the way, I'm just telling you what happened in my ICU, right? So I'm not suggesting other people will have this experience, but I'll tell you what the experience that I had. I had a gentleman who he was unable to get his eggs up to his mouth. And literally, that was the only thing that mattered to him in that moment because he really had no other thing to look forward to, given what his prognosis was. And I looked at the rest of my service. I was thinking I have basically no capacity to fix many of the problems that they have. But I was able to go in and help this guy eat his eggs. I fed it to him. And I remember a medical student saying to me, Dr. T, like, there's other people that you don't have to do that. And I'm like, bro, you don't understand. This is my big chance to be helpful to this guy, right? And you, you like, the, the, his eyes lit up when I was able to give him his eye. Maybe it's a, a, a silly example, but what, I'm, what I tell people is that just look for any little thing that you can do that can be meaningful to them and do it. And you will benefit from having had that experience. The other thing I want to say is that when you say compassion fatigue, I often think it actually refers to empathy fatigue. And I don't want to be too like, you know, nerdy about this, but Tanya Singer, who is a neuroscientist out of Germany, probably in my opinion, anyway, the leading neuroscientist on the difference between empathy and compassion, what what she, what her research supports is that we need to have a self-other distinction in the sense that I can identify, understand the suffering another person has, but I can at the same time identify that it's not happening to me, that it's not my tragedy. And therefore, I can try to help that person in that tragedy without sharing that emotion. Yet Dr. Singer's done the most work on that. And so when, when I think about compassion fatigue, I really think about empathy fatigue. I, I think that's really what we're describing. And a self-other distinction is really important. For example, many of your listeners may be familiar with the work of Dr. Brene Brown, who's just a brilliant researcher and storyteller and author. And what she says um, is that the most compassionate people that she has ever met have one thing in common, and it is exactly what you said. It's boundaries. So they tell people what is okay and what's not okay, and they're very clear about those boundaries. And it's not the, what she says in, in her work is that it is the setting of boundaries that allows them to come back again and again and again consistently day after day, year after year. And it is those boundaries that allows them to be the most compassionate people that she's ever met. I agree that boundaries are important. And it seems like this is something that can come with practice, right? Like a lot of the, a lot of the stuff we cover on this show is communication, right? Improving your communication with your patients. And what we found is a lot of this can be practiced with your friends, with your colleagues, not just in the exam room. And this seems like a great example of it, like just getting practiced at looking for opportunities 
for compassion in and out of the exam room. And then the more opportunities you see, the more opportunities you see. There was a study from the University of Toronto recently that found that in everyday life, I'm not talking about doctors, in everyday life, regular people have nine, nine empathy opportunities per day. Empathy or compassion? So oftentimes in research, those terms are used interchangeably, although I gave you very distinct definitions. And the researchers don't always, their definitions don't always line up with what I gave you. The point is that they're, let's just consider them opportunities, whether we call it empathy or compassion, opportunities. I remember reading it in your book as empathy, and I was going to ask the question, I'm like, wait a second, that doesn't line up with just what we were talking about. No, but it was empathy. Okay. So the nine opportunities for empathy. All right, great. So that makes me think, like, how many opportunities did I miss already today? Like, how many, how many did I miss early in the morning or in the afternoon? I mean, it's when you think of it that way, your radar is up, you know, and I love what you said about our opportunities to practice and to get better are not just with our patients in the exam room, but with everybody. So for me, when I went through the throes, when I was in the throes of burnout and I did what I call my N of one experiment with what I call testing the compassion hypothesis, it wasn't just for patients and families in the ICU. It was with the nurses that at that time I had worked with for like 15 years. It was with my trainees, my colleagues, but definitely at home. And for me, I got all the relationship enhancement that flowed from that. And that's when the fog of burnout began to lift for me. And so I agree with you that we need to, it's not just something in the exam room. It's more of a way to just approach life. What are some other opportunities for empathy or compassion that you've discussed before that have really resonated with your audiences? What I, one of the things among many that I'm really interested in is what patients remember. And so I had a patient, this was a, just a few years back, a 55-year-old man who was with septic shock. So all of his organ systems were shutting down. And it was clear to me in my 20 years of ICU experience that he wasn't going to make it through the night. And I had to have that conversation with his sister, who was just a few years younger than him. And it was a really hard talk. And of course, it always is. But as I was getting up to leave for what I thought was the end of the conversation, she asked me a question that I'd never been asked before in the ICU. She said, you don't remember me, do you? And I said, I'm, I'm sorry, I, I don't. And she said, I, I wouldn't expect you to. You take care of so many patients in here. You guys are so busy. I wouldn't expect you to remember me, but I need you to know something. And she took her hand and she pointed it to the ICU bed right across the hall from where her brother lay. And she said, seven years ago, my mom was in that bed right over there and she was dying and there was nothing that could be done to save her. And you were her doctor and you had to tell me that. So you and I, we've had this talk before. And it just took my breath away when she said that. But then she said something that as long as I live, I'll never forget. 
She said, I need you to know something. My mom and I were so close. It hurts even now for me to think back to losing her. But what I need you to know is those nurses, those nurses, they were like angels to me. They held me in those days when my mom was dying and they let me know that I wasn't going to go through it alone. And I didn't because of them. And so what I want you to know is every time I think back to losing my mom and it still hurts so much, I think about it every day. I think back to those nurses and it helps me feel better even seven years later. So those ICU nurses who are like Olympic champions in compassion, they probably went home at the end of their shift and didn't think much about it. Like, this is just who we are. This is what we do. You know, this, this is our identity. And maybe a month later, they wouldn't even remember her. But she not only remembered it, it was therapeutic to her seven years later. And so I teach this to my students, to my residents, to my fellows in critical care. There's something about healthcare experiences that stay with people, probably because there's so much emotion associated. And I don't know if it's because the amygdala where we, you know, experience intense emotions is right next to the hippocampus where we make our memories, but there's something about healthcare experiences that stay with people. And what do you want to be remembered for? Because you're going to go home at the end of your shift, like whatever, right? Or not. But for this person, it's going to go on and on and on and on, never to be forgotten, perhaps. The reason why I tell them that isn't because, you know, be mindful or be wary. It's to know your power. Because if you go over the top in your compassion in that moment, its power is magnified. You know, it's magnified, I don't know how many fold, but because it'll go on forever and ever. So that's what I try to teach people because, you know, These moments are snapshots in time for us as caregivers, but they're not for the patients. And you can either take advantage of those opportunities for compassion and empathy, or you can let them slip by. And the more we notice them, the more we notice them, the more we can take advantage of them. And when you leverage that, you get the fulfillment of it and it builds purpose, it builds meaning and yeah, everybody works hard. I don't know a doc. I don't, I literally don't know a doctor that doesn't work their tail off, right? But it's a good tired. If you have those relationships that flow from that, I got 85 residents in medicine and a whole, like a whole slew of fellows. And this is what I try to teach them. And it's great stuff. And I think that's a great place to end. So, Dr. Stephen Treziak, thank you so much. So, for the listeners, Compassionomics, the revolutionary scientific evidence that caring makes a difference. And the follow-up wonder drug, seven scientifically proven ways that serving others is the best medicine for yourself. Thank you for the great work that you're doing, and thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Brad. The pleasure is all mine. Before we go, be sure to check out the incredible work of Edward Dabdab and Dabdab Law Firm. For more information and expert guidance on disability insurance claims, visit their website, longtermdisability.net. Thanks for listening. I have a favor to ask. You listened to the episode until the end, which means you either fell asleep or you really liked the episode. So please share it or like it or comment on a social media post or write us a five-star review, something. It would really help me out. And maybe what you learned from this episode can help someone else too. 
The views expressed in this episode are those of the interviewer and interviewee and don't represent the views of their employer or even their significant other. Even though the magic of podcasting make it sound like I'm talking directly to you, this is not a doctor-patient relationship and this is not medical advice or financial advice or really any advice. Thank us again for listening to the Physician's Guide to Doctoring.